Welcome to the Hardware Asylum Podcast. In this episode, we talk about the Gigabyte Target OC competition on HardwareBot, Fallout 4 gaming builds, and online gaming communities. I'm your host, Dennis Garcia. With me today, I have Darren McCain. Dennis, winter is in the air here at the Hardware Asylum Labs. It's getting cold outside. Time for those outdoor activities to come to an end and bring us back to the lab for maybe a little overclocking. Sounds like fun. I like it. So I know it's been a while since we've done any serious overclocking, at least competitively. Do you have any plans for overclocking? Any new competitions? I got an email from Gigabyte the other day talking about their new Target OC competition that they're hosting on HardwareBot. Ooh, Target OC. I saw that too. Now that sounds a lot like the kind of competition that we discussed a while back via podcast. I'm seeing the, the name Gigabyte Target OC Open Target. Open Target. So what is an Open Target competition? Did I get it right? You got it right. The Open Target competition is one where... They open up a certain stage and then say, you have to hit this target using this benchmark and you have five days to do it. Okay, so I'm looking now at oc-esports.io, which is the HardwareBot.org sponsored page for this particular competition. Yeah, it's their competition engine attached to HardwareBot. I have to say I like their graphic. It's very bold, but it it leads me to some questions. So let's, let's talk about this competition a little bit. All right. Talk to me. So if I were, I'm reading this correctly, there are two different types of entries. So how does that work out? Well, we have the ambient and extreme. And this is this goes back to the roots of hardware bot where you have dividing line between overclockers. You have the guys that do air and water. And then you have the people that do sub ambient with you know, liquid nitrogen, dry ice, or even a single stage phase. So sub-ambient being below zero or below room temperature? Yeah, that would be the definition. All right. And I think <laughs> I got that. So spending a lot of money most of the time. Yeah, there's a definite um, cost of entry. So there are multiple categories, it looks like, that you can enter in multiple stages. So let's let's see. So what kind of categories are we looking at here? It looks like two CPU cores. So what kind of processor are we looking at here? Okay, well, obviously we have ambient and extreme, so everything is going to be divided down that line. We start with two cores, which is your Core i3, your Pentium Anniversary Editions. This is going to be just basically two cores. It'll have hyperthreading or may not have hyperthreading, depending on your CPU. Right, so let me step back just a little bit because I should mention that this is on specifically Gigabyte motherboards. Is that correct? Obviously, yeah. It's a Gigabyte-hosted competition, so they're going to want you to use their hardware. And also, based on the graphic, I am guessing that these are, well, pretty modern processors there. I don't think they limit you on which chipset you can use, but obviously in their graphic, they have everything back to X58, which is the start of the OC series from Gigabyte. Okay, that makes sense for their motherboards then. So you're talking the two core CPUs. Mm -hmm. Core i3 and Pentium Anniversary Edition. Then we've got the four CPU cores. Mm-hmm. And that would be your general Haswell Core i5, i7 processor. So that's the kind of category that I would most likely be looking at. And then if we step it up from that, it must be, yep, it is, the six core CPU monsters. Yeah, and these would be the extreme, you know, like the Haswell extreme, the Ivy Bridge and Sandy Bridge extremes. Terrific. So some great processes there. I can see the divisions. But I also see that they have stages now. The stages is 
gigabytes way of differentiating between the different targets I would take it. Right. This is something that the OCE Sports, their online competitions are always divided up into stages. So the competitions have to match that. Okay. So we have six stages. And as I mentioned before, each stage is, looks like it's open for five days. So if we go and click on the Extreme 2 Core, the target that's currently open in stage one is XTU 450. So that is the target that you need to hit. Looks like there's five people that have submitted already, and one person already hit the target of 450 mark. Now that would be Dark Venom from Brazil. Certainly got to be very proud to have hit that exact mark. Wonder how many tries it took. <laughs> Who knows? That's the nice thing about doing this in a targeted platform. You have a certain amount of time to get that done. Now, if we switch over to the ambient, we have XTU of 310. So obviously, the extreme, you can hit higher scores because you can go below ambient and push your CPU a little bit further. 310, right now we have one person that has submitted, and he submitted a score of 480 marks, which would put him into stage one in <laughs> the previous category. But um, I suspect that he is submitting for an alternative motive. Yeah, now I won't call him out because that's not the most competitive score, but at least he was the first one to submit. Mm-hmm. And he might actually be the only one. Well, you never know. Looking at this, and we should point out that on the day that this was recorded, the competition had just opened, which mm-hmm. was November 8th, and the competition ends on December 5th, was it? Uh, yeah, I believe so. It goes for a month. So you have very small windows to hit this, and the reason for that, I'm guessing, is so that you can't spend all day submitting scores. Yeah. And well, and they want to push the competition along to force people to be active. That makes because sense. Because in the past, we've had um, you know, the issue of sandbagging. This is always like something that came up with anybody that can submitted. So on the very last day, the last couple of hours, people would submit all of their last <laughs> scores. That you know, They might have done this on the first day of the competition, but they wait until the very last minute to submit it and be... You know, trying to steal away points from people. So sure, yeah, like the eBay sniping technology. That yeah, that totally makes sense. All right, now I have another question, just to make sure that we've covered all the details. Now I see that this particular target is by the XTU benchmarking suite, and I also see from their rules that they have a couple of different software suites that they're going to be using. XTU Geekbench three. Can you give us any, you know, overview on those? Are they graphic intensive, processor intensive, balanced? What are we looking at here? I believe these are both CPU-bound uh, benchmarks. XTU obviously is going to be CPU-intensive. Geekbench, I have never run that, so I couldn't even tell you how to start it. Well, that sounds like at least trying some new benchmarks or maybe just a sponsor. I'm seeing as we're looking at some of the other stuff while we're chatting with you guys here that the different targets are at least they're telling you in advance what they're going to be using even if they haven't given you the target. So what can we win? What kind of prize support are we talking about here? Prize-wise, we have four basic prizes. We have an ambient winner, which wins uh, 170X Gaming 3 motherboard, which is a pretty high-end. Oh, and that's one per category. So they're going to give one away for 2X, 4X, and 6X in each category. Yeah, so it looks like three motherboards, which is nice. The extreme winner is going to get a Z170X SoC Force Skylake motherboard. Great motherboard. One per category as well. Global first place. This, I believe, is the person that wins the overall competition. $250 US. So you could walk away with several motherboards and some cash. Now, just to make it juicy 
for people that want to enter this competition. Gigabyte is throwing this out saying, if you win the lucky draw, you will be getting $500 US and a gaming G1 motherboard. Ooh, another nice motherboard. And that is really nicer than to put up what is actually very equivalent to what you'd win if you were one of the main winners just for participating. So that really gives you a lot of incentive, I guess, to put some scores out there, assuming that you have competitive hardware, of course. Yeah, obviously there's a few rules. For instance, to enter the lucky draw, you must participate in all six targets in a minimum of two categories. Oh, two categories. So you need to submit in um, ambient two CPU and ambient four CPU. Our gentleman that submitted the 450 mark score for, you know, ambient two core probably just did it to meet the criteria of the lucky draw. He's just going after that. That could be, or maybe he's going to submit something more competitive in a different category. Mm, Possibly. You know, I looked at his score. I was kind of curious. I was like, why did he do 480? He already had his system overclocked. So I'm thinking that that's just the way that it was set up. Sure. His baseline score, perhaps. And if it's good enough to win, it's good enough to win. It's a unique take on a target-based online competition. Uh, Admittedly, Gigabyte has done one of these before. A couple of the comments that I heard at Computex was that they were benchmarking the competition engine. Oh, no. So, you know, for instance, if you wanted to hit uh, 450 marks in XTU, you just need to do a search for your CPU back through Hardware Bot and find somebody that got close, match that, and then try and run your benchmark and see if you get close. If you have a stack of hardware, of course, that would tell you where you're going to be unless you had a mm-hmm. really good or really bad piece of hardware, I guess. Oh, yeah. That's uh, what I do when I go and run a benchmark. It's like, hey, I want to hit 7970s. So I go out to Hard Robot. I look at the benchmark I'm going to run at the frequency that I know it can hit, see how many points to see if it's even worth running. If it's only worth like, you know, 0.0 points, then it's not really worth my time to go out and get LN2 and run it if I can't be competitive. That makes sense. On the plus side, if you have that hardware, it's a great opportunity to go out there, have a chance to win some motherboards and a little bit of cash. So if you're a Gigabyte fan, and we know there are lots of them out there, I'd suggest you go take a look. And good luck benching. Last podcast, we talked about some of the games that we are anticipating coming out. And guess what? This month, we have Fallout 4. Very exciting. In fact, there's been a lot of news about that game, Uh, really a whole lot. In fact, I even saw a doctor had put out a downloadable sick excuse in case you need an excuse to sit at home and play Fallout 4. But a lot of the news has also been based around the graphics and gameplay and the machine needed to run it. Right. I had a friend of mine, longtime co-worker, message me out of the blue saying, Fallout 4 is coming out, and I think I need to upgrade my machine. Did you say, it's about time? (laughs) (laughs) No, no. He he went the route of getting a CyberPower PC build a long time ago. This is back in, you know, Sandy Bridge days. Oh, okay. Yeah, it went with the 2700K, which was the overclocked uh, Sandy Bridge. So it was running, it would turbo up to 4 gigahertz. And based off of the minimum system requirements, that was the only weak part of his entire system to be able to run recommended in Fallout 4. Well, let's talk about the system requirements for Fallout 4. Because if you're not excited about playing about it, you should be. But if you are, let's see if your machine will measure up. So what do you got, Dennis? All right, so 
Well, minimum system requirements, obviously, we have Intel Core i5-2300, which is a 2.8 gigahertz processor, or you could run a Finem 2 4X945 here. 3 gigahertz or equivalent, which <laughs> the or equivalent is always the part that confuses people because they don't know like, oh, hey, Skylake is cheaper, but it should be faster than Haswell E. It looks like you're going to need 8 gigs of RAM and at least 30 gigabytes of free hard drive space and a GeForce GTX 5500 or yeah, 550 Ti 2 gigabit or a Radeon 7872 gigabit. Well, that doesn't sound too bad, but that's just the minimum requirements, right? So we're talking about dialing that puppy down, maybe. Oh yeah, you more might be able to want. You might be able to load the game with that system. Okay, so I'm guessing that the recommended is a little bit beefier. Yeah, it looks that way. We have a Intel Core i7 4790, which is a Devil's Canyon 3.6 gigahertz processor, or we're going to do an FX 9590 4.7 gigahertz processor. 8 gigs of RAM, obviously, 30 gigs of hard drive space just to store the game. We have a GTX 780 or a Radeon R9290X. Interesting. Well, I know that a lot of game companies, the recommended tends to be sort of wish listy because the machine will run fine somewhere between the two. Mm-hmm. So I know you were recommending a system, and that ended up turning into a build, I believe, for our build section. Right. Oh, uh, one anecdote on this uh, PC Gamer page is uh, thankfully these are reasonable or more reasonable than those of Battlefield. (laughs) Battlefront, you mean? Oh, Battlefront. Okay, yeah, the the new Star Wars game. If anyone has been looking at system specs for those games, that's always a good uh, judge, litmus test. I can tell you from experience that Battlefront is sure visually stunning, so it doesn't surprise me that it drives a little bit higher. Hey, like always, you're running it somewhere in the middle. But you built a build inspired by that particular. Right. I was looking at a realistic gaming build that would play Fallout 4. So in this one, we have the Skylake Core i7-6700K matched with an MSI Z170A Gaming M7 motherboard. Very solid board. It was one that we reviewed. We have the EVGA 970 for the win card. Didn't go 980, mostly for cost, because you could save yourself a couple hundred bucks by going 970 route. Well, 970 matches the system requirements right on, and that one's a good 970. Well, this is better, because we had 780, and that was a couple generations old. Yeah, so uh, we're going to match that with some Trident Z 16 gigabit DDR4 sticks. These are um, 3,000 or 3 gigahertz sticks, so we're going to be running a bit faster than what you need, but this is going to help. Well, and you've got 16 gigs, so you have enough memory to handle background processes. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going to be playing Fallout 4, you might want to stream it. Yeah, well, you want to double it up. And, you know, it's $76 for the kit, so why not? <laughs> why not? Uh, we're going to do all-in-one water cooling. I wanted to do an Acetec based cooler, so we're going to the Water 3.0 from Thermaltake. We want a HyperX Savage 240 gig SSD, and then we're going to have a 2 gigabit two terabytes, sorry, Seagate Barracuda Drive. And that's going to be mostly for game file storage, movies. And we're going to do a Fantex Evolve case. And this is a, a, I reviewed the mini ITX version of this case. And this is the much bigger brother of it. Still very nice. It has really, really good cooling. Nice system layout. It's just kind of a very nice case. It's a bit expensive, but it's well worth it. 
We're going to match that with the Supernova G2 750 watt power supply from EVGA. And uh, I basically didn't pick an optical drive, but that's kind of personal preference. You know, everybody has the drives that they like. Some people like Blu-rays, some people don't like them at all. So, Well, and if you're really on a budget, you can watch your deal sites and get one for less than 20 bucks sometimes. Yeah. This, I'm going to say, is a pretty solid build. If you wanted to save yourself a couple of hundred dollars or so, you could go down to the Core i5-6600 Skylake and still get the same system performance because the NVIDIA graphics that you're using is going to offset the physics processing from the CPU. Now, looking at your build, at the time that you put this together, you're looking at just over $1,600 for the build. Mm -hmm. And the budget-minded that'd be me, Yeah, is seeing already ways that you could mimic this build cheaper, not just by getting a cheap case, which is arguably a, a compromise position, but you could also get a base model 970 that closer to $200. If you had to, drop your memory to 8 gigs. Oh, I'd hate to see you suffering through a cheaper cooling system because 69 for thermal take water 3.0 is really a good deal. But you do have some opportunities there to cut this price down by maybe two, three hundred bucks pretty easily. Oh, yeah. Well, in the post, I talked about what was important with modern games, DirectX 11 and 12 games. It's basically all the video card. The CPU is going to be there to submit data to the card, but that's where all the visuals are going to be. So you want to spend most of your money on the video. Well, and I like that you've chosen a gaming M7 motherboard because that is a nice full featured motherboard that's going to help you with some things that you don't always remember, like good onboard sound yeah onboard sound it's also going to offload the sound processing to the chip that's on board it also has the killer network so it's going to offload all of the network calculations to that chip and it just frees up more of the processor so you can still get away without the hyper threading yeah. and the slightly slower cpu so definitely you could save money on the cpu side motherboard i wouldn't skimp on that even though yeah you could find a board for a hundred bucks and sure you can game on it but there's some niceties there well the thing that's important to remember also coming from the budget money guy is that there are areas that you don't want to cut one of the things that we don't talk enough about is what the cost of cutting can be and that is when you go with a no-name motherboard or a a generic video card that's a base model or reference i mean you're giving up some intangibles but you're also giving up build quality and things that maybe don't seem important when you're looking at the budget, like the quality of the cooling on your video card that's going to extend the life of that, or the things like the sound on board the motherboard. Well, yeah, that keeps you from having to buy an extra card and supports things that I like, like 5.0 or 7.0 sound that are going to increase the immersion and the gaming experience completely. And some of the software that goes along with that to enhance it. MSI has a, a surround sound audio package that's really good. It's from a French company. I cannot pronounce the name, but you can go out to the MSI website and look it up. It's pretty good. One of the other things that you've spent a decent chunk of money on here that I think is worth revisiting is the power supply. You've got an EVGA Supernova. And I know I recently saw a build on one of the real common build sites, and that's a PC Gamer or a Maximum PC, the same company. And they've built a similar machine and maybe worth talking about, but they really save money on their power supply by going with a Corsair. CX600M, 600-watt, 80-plus bronze power supply, which is, wow, you know, at the time they published theirs, only 65 bucks. I looked at doing a cheaper power supply, definitely. I went with the 750 because, one, it was an 80-plus gold, mm -hmm. so it was going to be really super efficient. 
Also, in some of my power supply testings, when you run a system up to the limit of that power supply, it becomes less efficient, creates more heat, and also creates more noise in the system. So spending a little extra to get a larger power supply, it's not going to increase your power bill or anything like that. It's just going to make the system run smoother. It's also going to run quieter. So clearly having a good power supply is a good foundation. Had a couple other differences I think worth noting. They went with the Core i5 Skylake processor. Okay, that's understandable. A little bit of performance difference, but a lot of money saved. Mm-hmm. They went with a Asus motherboard, the Z170 Pro Gaming, which is a, a great motherboard. Maybe tomato, tomato there. Mm-hmm. But interestingly enough, they went with Crucial Ballistic Sports DDR4, which we really love, but Crucial right now isn't making a really fast DDR4. There's this 2400 and only 8 gigs there in their build. And at $55. Yeah, so you went $79 to double the memory, and you went up to 3000 How big is the impact of that on a game? It depends on the game, obviously. In the Fallout 4 environment, it's going to increase the speed of the data going from CPU to memory to the video card, because you want to feed that the video card as much data as possible. So the faster you can get the, the memory the faster that interaction is going to be. It's going to be very minute, but it can be the difference between 10 and 20 frames in a game. I personally think that a little bit of extra RAM is a good budget decision, especially when you're talking that small a difference. I mean, that's really the cost of that disk drive that's optional right there. To double your memory, get faster memory, which takes that latency away, but it also gives you the opportunity to multitask, play some music in the background, whatever you got to do without worrying about yeah, just barely making that Fallout 4 requirement there. One of the other things I noticed that they've skimped on a little bit is they've gone with a Cooler Master Hyper 212 Evo for the CPU cooler. Yeah, that's, well, it's a cheap cooler. It's very efficient. It's one that, I mean, I still use in, or recommend in certain builds. It doesn't do anything for overclocking. You know, it's very limited in its capacity. You can put bigger fans on it, but it still has very limited amount of cooling ability. Yes, granted, Skylake is not a very hot processor, but when you can run, like, for instance, I picked the all-in-one cooler, that is going to be a bit more efficient. You can run lower speed fans on it, and it's going to be almost whisper quiet, whereas with the Evo, once the game gets going, that fan's going to ramp up, and it's going to be pretty noisy. Interesting. And of course, I should point out that, not surprisingly, they've skimped on the case to get a very budget-friendly NZXT S340 case. Now, we like NZXT cases because they are terrific budget cases, but they don't tend to be cooling monsters. <laughs> no. Well, they're not cooling monsters. They're, um, they're designed to be a budget. I went with a higher-end, good-looking case, mostly because if you're going to be spending $1,600, $1,700 on a PC, you kind of want it to look good. It's going to last a while. And that case is one that you can grow into. I totally agree. Their build on PCGamer.com if you want to check this out. Came to 1226, almost 1250. So they they came in about four hundred dollars less than you did. And we I think have already identified in your build some simple ways that you could meet that price without compromising, at least in some of the areas we've discussed. Yeah. I mean I'd already mentioned that you could go with the Core I5 6600 k and not see any difference in the game. Obviously, you can skimp on the case. That's personal preference, really. Right. So, you know, there's obvious ways that you can change that. 
One of the few things that I would disagree with strongly is don't skimp on the power supply and be very careful on your cooling because these are the things that are going to make your hardware perform at its best and extend the life and reduce the risk that some of this hardware that you skimped on is going to get blown out. So anyway, as we're looking forward to Fallout 4, I think we can both agree that an ideal PC is somewhere between those two, 16, 1200, all based on your personal preference. But more importantly, you've got Fallout 4, and if you can't spend at least 50 or 100 hours in that game, then maybe you don't need to be looking at a new PC. <laughs> at least, that's my opinion. So, get to gaming! Darren, they say that the internet is the wild, wild west. <laughs> yeah, they do. And that comes from the, the lawless nature of the, you know, the way the West was won in the U.S., but really, that is not necessarily true, because during those times, we had, um, you know, you'd have a town start up, and you'd create a community, and then you'd have somebody in charge, and then you'd have the law come in, and like, you know, if somebody was doing something actually illegal, they would go and take care of it. Otherwise, it's usually the community kind of policed themselves to make sure everybody was doing something that what they approved of. Well, yeah, I agree. It seems like communities in general are built around a common standard or rule set. And when everyone agrees, that's kind of what makes a community because you can enforce that agenda to some extent and have something that brings you together and protects you from that lawless nature. Right. And back in the early days, you know, this is back in college, I was on MIRC oh, quite yeah. often. And it was kind of comical. You go into some of these large rooms and they would um, kind of truly a bit say, hey, hit Alt F4 twice for ops. Oh, and no. it's like, you know, being a channel op was awesome because then you could bad people, kick them, ban them, stuff like that, or like do a channel split. But of course, hitting Alt F4 twice, exits the window, exits the program. <laughs> oh no, so they're trolling you for real. Yeah, it was really kind of fun because they would do that and then you'd see like 20 people drop off. Yeah, I can't believe how many times I see people say, oh, hey, how do I do this? Hit Alt F4. Of course, <laughs> like everybody hasn't heard that joke. Right. But in the IRC rooms, there would be a definite structure. You had the, the channel ops, the people that created the room, and then you'd have moderators within that room. And within that, you'd also have usually a bot to make sure that the room didn't go away completely and um, starting games and file downloads and stuff like that. So I'm kind of wondering, how does that translate into, say, modern gaming servers? Because, you know... Uh, COD 4 was a very common LAN party game, but you could run an internet server and it would be hosted on your own box and then you'd have the person that set up the server, they would have the ability to go in and kick ban people, but that was just one person, like the server admin. Now with, you know, they're controlling the servers to the point where they set them up and then when people want to play on them, they can set the, you know, they could buy the, the server and set it up the way that they want, right? Well, yeah, Electronic Arts rents servers. In fact, my clan... Uh, runs a, a series of servers, and they, uh, of course, deal with that. Let's face it, when you can be anonymous, which the Internet definitely makes easy, then you're going to have folks that take advantage. Well, yeah, you see that all the time on Reddit. Yeah, uh, without you know going into too great details, I have those problems a lot when I'm playing Battlefield 4 with my clan, or at least on the clan servers, not so much when the clan is around because, of course, the community reinforces their rules. But before I got serious about being a part of the clan, there were frequent times when you're on the server and things are just deteriorating with griefing or some 
pretty aggressive language. I don't want to get into a great deal there, but I mean, people are just being jerks and you go, man, you know, where are the admins when you need them? So speaking of, in the last podcast, you mentioned that you were being pruned to be a admin within your clan, correct? Yeah, I am. Let's talk about that a little bit. So I'm excited to say that I, I spend a lot of time on, you know, usually one or two servers when I play. And the reason for that is you find a good server you want to stick with, especially if you can find good gameplay. And I know we've talked a lot about Battlefield 4 and people know how I feel about how difficult it is to find a really good server, or at least a group of people on the server that will play. And Battlefield 4 really shines with team play. But it's equally easy to get into a situation where everybody's doing their own thing. And so an organized structure on a server, especially a clan-based server, is a great way to keep the game positive. And again, without going into great details, I am grateful to say that I was picked, uh, maybe because I spend a lot of time on these servers, but I like to think because I tended to be at least a little bit involved and adult to be a admin. Oh, cool. And my clan treats members at three different levels. And so this is the kind of structure we have based sort of on your community where you have entry-level folks. Mm -hmm. And we, as an entry-level group, uh, you're like on the watch list. You've been invited to participate. You're on the forums and you are encouraged to join up with the more experienced members of the clan and the regulars and kind of make yourself felt and become a part of that community. Right. So like the the server isn't invite only. It's an open server. That's so, correct. So at this point, they they see the people that come back all the time. They see the people that are engaged in the community, you know, people that you take notice of. Right. And the kind of people that you want to game with more. So it's more like a, hey, welcome. We see that you're around a lot and we'd like to uh, make you feel like you're a part of the crew. Mm -hmm. And so I made an effort to play with these folks and to uh, join their squads when they were online in an effort to get to know them a little better sort of courted the clan also to see if they were a good fit for me. And I just had come off of a different clan that had sort of dissolved and had our server support just go away because the clan was no longer big enough to support it. So I didn't have an active clan at the time. I had clans that I played with, but we weren't organized. You know, your groups of buddies. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're going to play with your friends. Mm -hmm. So I joined up with these guys and you know, for a few months kind of got to know them and even Gasp got on TeamSpeak and said hi a couple of times. Oh my gosh, you actually said hi. Yeah, now to be fair, I don't like to spend a lot of time in voice chat, mostly because I play a lot when the family's asleep, <laughs> but also because I just honestly don't have a lot of time for that kind of chit-chat, and it's usually younger folks, and they just go and go and go. <laughs> <laughs> and the language that comes out of their mouth is not necessarily PZ-friendly. A little sketchy. Yeah, it... Reminds me of a Penny Arcade cartoon. I will try to link it in the show notes if I remember, but it is really funny. So long story short, after playing with these guys a little while, and my hope was that I would get whitelisted so I wouldn't have to wait to get onto their server. So I had, you know, an ulterior motive initially mm -hmm. besides the sense of belonging, but the sense of belonging kept me around. They invited me to move up to the second tier, which is a active admin on the server. Oh, nice. So I of course, was like, oh, yeah, sure, that sounds great, and had kind of forgotten about it. And one night, one of the clan leaders, and this is this is a big clan, one of the larger ones in the United States, uh, caught me on and said, hey, you know, can I chat with you in a separate channel? And, of course, my immediate thought was, oh, God, what did I do? Band time. I know I'm going to get kicked off of my favorite server. 
Anyway, so he took me into a side clan and said, hey, I don't know if you noticed it, but you've been, uh, you know, selected for promotion. And if you're interested, we can do that. And I'm like, oh, cool. How do I do that? And he's like, well, let's do it now. <laughs> now. So I'm like, okay. So he uh, spent some time walking through what I would say is about a 20, 30 minute uh, admin basic training program. And it involved, you know, agreeing to a code of contact and going out onto their website and signing their code of conduct and reading their admin guides and rules and signing off on them. And then we walked through, you know, some common situations and some admin consoles type stuff. So I understood how to do that. Oh, yeah, like the console commands when you log into the server and stuff. Yeah, exactly. What it made it interesting to me was that not only did they have a nomination process and somebody, I don't even know who to this day, nominated me, but they had picked me off the list, which meant they'd been kind of watching me, which is sort of cool and sort of scary, and had decided that I might make a good fit for them too. So it worked out in that sense of community, again, that we just talked about. So I went through this admin training, and I have to tell you, I was impressed. One, that they made a real effort to find out who I was before they made the offer, but two, that they actually had a set, I mean, literally manual that this guy walked through that had specific examples of how these things should be handled. And if you have questions, these are your mentors and here's how to get a hold of them real time. And here's what TeamSpeak channels they're in and the whole nine yards so that you had the support and basically said, okay, now you're a level two admin and your job is to be an admin. And if there's trouble on there and one of the seniors sees that you're on, they might tell you to go ahead and handle it just to make sure that you feel comfortable or they might ask you how you would handle it so that you have that sort of support to learn. And to be honest with you, it's kind of a big deal when you're new to this thing. You think, well, I'm an adult and I'm a big boy, but <laughs> you know, there's one thing to say, oh man, I wish there was an admin to deal with. It's another to go, oh gosh, I'm the admin. Maybe I should be dealing with this. I mean, it's kind of uncomfortable sometimes, especially when these are guys that you play with regularly and you're the one that now has to slap them around. Yeah. Well, they don't necessarily maintain a schedule saying you have to be on between hours, blah, and blah, right? No, no. And I think that's part of why they selected me is because I'm on at times often there isn't another admin on the service that I like to play. So I feel a gap. So I'm a responsible adult that's <laughs> on during that time that they didn't normally have a person. So, eh, you know, it worked out. Good fit for them. Good fit for me. They now are watching me and how I handle these things when they're on the servers and they have logs that they roll through to see what admin actions happen. And they'll tell me if they see something they don't like. So ooh, a little scary responsibility there, <laughs> but they also will, if they decide that I'm a good fit further, invite me to be a full admin, which takes that up a notch. And now instead of chastising people and kicking them or whatever, I'll have the ability to ban them, permanently ban them, report them to EA, all kinds of stuff, because we are an EA partner site. So it is a big deal to move up, and I'm sure that that's a very select few that I may never be a part of. But I wanted to kind of share that experience out there to let people know that, you know, there is a lot of organization, these sort of things. And it's sort of surprising when you see it from the other side on an organized server with an organized clan, a large organized clan, that's also a partner with EA, that you're not just really in the Wild West, that you can become a part of these communities, even if it's somewhat by accident, like it was in my, and, uh, grow to be a part of that. And now I find myself going out to their forums, occasionally visiting in the team speak, and it really encourages me to be a part of that community. And it makes me feel like, yeah, we have a common vision and a common goal to have fun on these servers. And 
and keep the community alive and growing, which is something here at Hardware Asylum that we talk about a lot. Well, yeah, community is, you know, it's common interest. It's what people want to talk about. And that's what drives certain discussions. You know, we ask our community what we should talk about on a podcast. Sometimes we get some answers. Sometimes we just have to make stuff up. Yeah, that community is what, you know, that's what drives certain technologies too. It's what makes these um, leased servers from EA work. I mean, that's really impressive. I mean, somebody goes out, they, they get this server from EA, they get support from EA, and part of that is that they have this structure in place. And, well, it goes and both ways, I think. When you have the structure and the maturity in place, I think that companies like EA notice, and we have sponsors that help pay for the servers that keep things alive. So it's a two-way street. We show that we are a mature, growing, large, thriving community, and in exchange, they provide us with the servers and support, and that's that's, I think, what makes things work. So I wanted to share my story a little bit because I know that we always complain about those idiots that are out there on the servers and all the horrible things they're doing. But it's also nice to know that there are places where that's not happening and to be able to share that I'm a part of one of those. So mm -hmm. don't give up hope. Find yourself a good community, either here on Hardware Asylum or out in the wild, wild west. They're out there. Just keep looking. For more information on the topics discussed in this podcast, please consult our show notes on HardwareAsylum.com. Stay up to date on the latest at Hardware Asylum by subscribing to our RSS. Follow us on Google or like us on Facebook. This has been an Engineering Production, copyright 2015. Thanks for listening.